Welcome, everybody. Go ahead and find your way to your seats, and big welcome to everyone joining us online this morning. It's good to be able to, uh, to gather together to worship the Lord. Just a couple of announcements to start us out. First thing is uh, we have a member meeting coming up next Sunday, right after the service, uh, April 18th, and this is just to uh, talk about what's going on in the church. And uh, we're going to be discussing in particular a few uh, additions, changes to the bylaws, um, and we're going to be getting some, some emails out, some information to you guys so that you can look that over before uh, the meeting and come with questions or discussion on those things. And yeah, encourage you to be there if you're a member. This is kind of part of your uh, duty and our expectations is that we gather together as a family to talk about what's going on. So encourage you to, uh, to be there. And I believe, I may be speaking out of turn, but I think we'll have an online option too if you are a member who would want to uh, join that way. So Speaking of members, we just wanted to uh, let you know, and she wanted to let you know, uh, Tandy Hasse is actually moving down to uh, Texas uh, after the death of her mom um, oh, a, f- a few months ago. She has family down there in the Texas area, and so she has decided to move down there, and this is uh, her last, last weekend with us, and I'm not sure. She said she wasn't sure if she was going to make it because she's been packing and all that kind of stuff, but uh, just wanted to let you know, Tandy is is making a move, so I uh, encourage you to uh, maybe give her a call, wish her, wish her well, and uh, we're going to miss having her around. All right, that's it for announcements. I'm going to read from Psalm, uh, Psalm 86, so if you want to grab your Bible, you can turn there. This is a, a great psalm that speaks of who God is, His love, His faithfulness, and very fitting for what we're going to be looking at in the book of Jonah this morning. So, Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we come and prepare our hearts and minds to worship you, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the psalm that speaks of who you are. And we agree with it and we praise you because you truly are good and forgiving. You abound in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Father, we confess that we do not deserve your goodness or your forgiveness. There is nothing special about us. In fact, we are by nature your enemies because of our sins. And yet you are gracious and you have shown incredible mercy to stir our hearts to see your son, Jesus Christ, for who he is and believe that his sacrifice on the cross is our only hope. We believe that he took our sins on himself on the cross and we believe that he rose again with power over death on the third day according to the scriptures. And so we agree with the psalm and say, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. We praise you, Lord, that one day all the nations you have made shall come and worship you and shall glorify your name. You alone are the object and cause of our worship this morning. We thank you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. Help us to worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do welcome you, and if you are tired and in need of rest, if you are grieving and longing for comfort, if you've seen God's good hand in your life, if you're prospering and desiring to give thanks, if you are weak and in need of strength, if you need to know that God loves you, if you're anxious and needing to cast your cares on the Lord, if you're realizing your sinfulness and seeing your need for forgiveness and cleansing, we welcome you all to worship with us now, to sing praise to our great God, our loving Father, our humble Savior, and the Spirit who helps us. Will you stand together and sing?
Would you join me as I pray this morning? Father, your word tells us uh, that your blessings are not upon those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, who stand in the way of sinners, or who sit in the seat of scoffers. Your blessings are not upon those who deny you, or those who flagrantly disobey you, or those who forsake your will and your ways. Your blessings are not upon those who choose to embrace folly. Your blessings are upon those who find their delight in your word and who meditate on it day and night. Your blessings are upon those who look outside of themselves for wisdom, who look beyond sinful humanity to know what's true and false, to know what's right and wrong. Your blessings are upon those who look to you, to the all-knowing, all-wise God, these are the ones who are like trees that have been planted beside streams of water, who are able to drink from that source of nourishment, who are able to grow strong, who are able to bear up under any challenge, who are able to prosper in the ways that matter most. And so we come to you this morning with these needs. God, we pray for the persecuted church around the world. We pray that they can sense your presence and experience your comfort and believe that people are praying for them or holding them up. We pray for our sisters and brothers in Erbil, Iraq, who gathered for worship this morning. Now we ask that you would open up doors for evangelism, that they may walk through them and boldly declare your glorious gospel, that you would grow them in your faith, give them wisdom in their ministry. May they remain joyful amidst suffering, knowing that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Allow them to forgive and love those that persecute them. And most importantly, ground them in your word 
that they would know and understand it and apply it to their life. Father, we think of unbelievers that surround us. We pray that you would open the hearts of the non-Christians that are close to us, that they would believe the gospel. We pray for Richard and Jessica and Oscar and Melissa and Denny, that you would give them understanding of the gospel this week. We pray for Lindsay and Amy and Tom and Jordan and Lacey and Devin, that you would open up their hearts so that they may believe in you. We know, God, that you must initiate and people respond. So we pray, God, that you would open the hearts of these unbelievers so they can turn to you and believe and trust in you alone. Father, we desire also to be faithful to your word, and so we pause and pray for those in authority over us. We pray for our President Joe Biden, for our Governor Jay Inslee, and we ask that you would help them, help them to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and that they would lead people first from a heart of submission to you. Pray for wisdom for our state senators, Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray. We pray for our local leaders, our city council here and mayor. We ask for honesty in their work. We pray for Mark Creeley and Ryan Day and Tyrone Christopherson and Roseanne Tomlin and John West and Colleen Wise and Nate Lowry. And we pray also for our mayor, Daryl Eidinger, give him wisdom and, and courage. We ask that you would raise up more Christians who would be willing to step into the arena of politics for your honor and glory. We thank you for many faithful Christians who serve our state and our nation, but ultimately serve you with their lives. May you be glorified in them and use our church to faithfully perform our civic duties out of a hard submission to you. Father, we also pray for churches in our area, not only just in Pierce County, but even south in Portland. We pray for Virgil Brown and his wife Kelsey as they plant Redemption Church on the east side of Portland. You would give them grace and strength to reach out to their neighbors and to be faithful to the proclamation of the word. We ask for funds that would come in to support this church and that ministry would grow under the preaching. We pray also for Hinson Baptist in Portland and their pastor Michael Lawrence. And we're thankful for this church body and the witness to the Portland area. Thank you for their help and encouragement to us in ministry. Would you give them wisdom to their elders as they navigate different regulations and circumstances now in ministry? The church family would love you more during this time. Father, we ask for our own church family that we would know your blessings. I pray that we would see clear evidence that you are at work here at Edgewood Bible Church. Let us see that evidence in ways that we relate to one another. I, I pray that we would be a church family marked by an obvious sacrificial love for one another. I pray that we would hold loosely instead of tightly to those things that you've given to us, remembering that each is a gift from you, our, our time and our money and our homes and our possessions. I pray that we would be always willing and ready to share with those in need, to be a blessing to them. And let us not only love others in our thoughts and our words, but also in our actions. Help us to be imitators of Jesus Christ in the way that he loved us. Father, let us see clear evidence that you are at work not only in the way we relate to one another but in the way we relate to others who do not know you people in our neighborhood people in our classes or offices or workplaces people in our families we pray that we would live before them in such a way that they would see our good works and give glory to you we pray that we would not only live a Christian life before them but we would speak the Christian gospel to them so they too would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And we ask that you would add to our number week by week those who are being saved. 
Father, we pray for our friends Gavin and Krista Krolik as they live and work in Eatonville. And we ask for wisdom and strength that they serve the school and community with the sudden and tragic loss of a student this week. You give them words of hope to share with students and teachers. That you give them the opportunities to, to share God, the gospel truth with those they come in contact with. We pray the same for our brother Rick Thomas as he's serving his family in Nevada. We pray for strength and wisdom as he ministers to his brother, as he talks to him about you, about the gospel. God, we ask for fruit. We pray also for our brother Pat Thatcher. You would continue to give him strength and grace as he works his way back home from rehab, from his injuries. Give him patience and give hope to his wife, Ellen, as she longs for him to be home. And now, Father, we, we must confess that we have not always loved your word as we ought this week. We do not have the commitment to it as we ought, as a source of wisdom that it's so good and so precious and so pure. Wisdom that's able to guide us away from all sin and into righteousness. And in this last week, each of us has at various times turned away from your word. We have chosen to disregard it. We have chosen to disobey it. And so we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would forgive us for all the sins we've done and for all the righteous deeds that we've failed to do. Forgive us for every time we embrace sin and for every time we ran from righteousness. And you would give us grace this morning. God, I pray that you would give your people the ability to listen and to engage with your word as it's preached. As we continue the journey through Jonah, help us to see ourselves. How many times you've given us second chances for obedience and brought repentance into our lives. I pray that we would learn something. May we be people changed as a result that we can see you clearly as a gracious God who loves us and who calls us and who sends us for your honor and glory. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We've been making, through, making our way through this uh, short book the last few weeks. Lord willing, we'll finish it next week, Jonah chapter 4. This week, we'll look at repentance. As you read the Bible, you see that God in his nature is ascending God. He is a calling God and ascending God. God is always moving. He, he isn't sitting on his hands. He isn't letting things just come to him. He, he's always, it seems, working and acting in some way for his glory and for the good of his people. And when God works in the life of Jonah in chapter 2, he works a repentance that changes Jonah, even, even just for a few days and a few weeks, as we will see in chapter 4. And as Jonah sinks into the water from running from God, he could never escape and realizes he never could escape the all-seeing eyes of his God. God will get his messengers and God will call and send his people where he chooses. After Jonah spends a few days in the gastrointestinal tract of a large fish, God doesn't say, hey, Jonah, you've had a rough time. Why don't you just take a vacation, take a few weeks off, recuperate, need some time to relax. He doesn't say that. No, he, he sends Jonah again. He says, go to Nineveh. He sends him back to Nineveh. And what that tells us is that the mission is not always for the well-rested, but that also tells us that God forgives his people when they fail. Following God is, is not just for the elite of us. It's not just for the people who have lots of time. It's not just for people who have lots of money. It's not for people who have no money. 
It's not just for people who have the gift of gab. It's not just for those who have a theological education. The call of God to go is for those who know they belong to God. God calls his children to go and to serve him. And the longer you know and spend time with God, you begin to realize that he doesn't give up too early on his children. Sometimes he calls them a second time, a third time, a fourth time, and you get the picture. When he comes to you and he says, will you go now? Will you get out of yourself and go serve others? Will you start to think of others as more important than yourself and serve them by going to them? How do we answer? How do we respond? So if we're going to, to know God and we're going to serve God, you must understand that God is a calling God and ascending God. He is still changing the world through people who are called and sent in his name. Tim Keller has said, God is a spiritual tornado. He never sucks you in without spitting you out for his glory. And we see that in Jonah. God draws in and calls his children out for his glory to go and to serve him. And as we come to the third chapter of Jonah, God calls his servant to go to Nineveh a second time. And God has his heart set on this city. God cares for the city. He cares for the people in this city. And he calls Jonah to go and he call out against it again. And God will do the rest, but Jonah must be obey, obedient to this. So look at Jonah chapter 3. Follow with me as I read. It's just 10 verses here this morning. Starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here is the main idea. Real short, God is gracious and long-suffering with sinners. God is gracious and long-suffering with sinners. God doesn't hold grudges against his people. His mercy continues, and God had to teach Jonah of his mercy for sinners. Jonah had refused to preach to the Ninevites because he didn't think that such great sinners deserved this great mercy. And Jonah needed to learn that he was a great sinner. And God's great mercy stretches to him and stretches to the people in Nineveh. So three points as we walk through. If you like taking notes, this will be a help to you. Uh, first, a second chance preacher. Second, a repenting city. And third, a gracious God. So let's dive in here. First, a second chance preacher, verses one through four. We, we don't know necessarily what's happening in the heart of Jonah when he woke up in the shores uh, after those days in the great fish. The days earlier must have felt like an eternity for him, falling in the water and then being scooped up by this fish. 
And I'm sure the experience was a vivid reminder that God is in control of his life, that God's sovereignty can stretch anywhere in the world. He, he was certainly wiser and hopefully a better man because of what he experienced. But in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah's experience was a unique one, but many Christians can testify to similar experiences in their life. How how many of us would confess this morning that it it was only because the word of the Lord came a second time, or a third time, or a fourth time, and before we then listened and we obeyed? When God first called us into service for him, we pushed back with reluctance and fear, perhaps filled with selfish ambition and just plain stubbornness. We're more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. Friends, it's, it's only because we have a God of persistent grace that we're serving him today. As I said last Sunday, God had his heart set on Nineveh. And because of that, Jonah was saved and was sent back to the city again. And God has determined that his children serve him, no matter the cost. God is so amazing in his patience with his children and his plans for us. And just think, Jonah had no idea what he was in for the second time. But God was working and God was going to use his preaching. And then the call comes in verse 2. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah obeyed the word of God. Verse 2 is almost identical to chapter 1, verse 2, but we see a different response from Jonah this time. And it's significant. We shouldn't gloss over the obedience of God's children to God's word. God's word has the power to break through staleness and stubbornness in our hearts. And even though Jonah disobeyed God's first word to him, he was being shaped by it. He was being fitted to be a servant while he sat in the belly of that great fish. And God's scandalous mercy pursued him and caught him and sent him. Spit him on the ground now to be a speakerphone of God's great scandalous mercy for the nations. And we're reminded again that God will have his way in his servants. So Christian, has, has God given you a particular ministry, a situation, a relationship, an opportunity, and you messed it up? I mean, you just royally screwed up. And now you feel like you're done. You feel like maybe you're outside of the will of God in your life and you feel horrible about it. And you need to remember that it was our God who came and gave hope to Adam after the fall. And whatever you've done in this life, friends, you haven't doomed the entire human race into eternal misery like Adam did. And God still gave him hope. God gave hope to Joseph's brothers when they sold their brother into slavery. After they repented their sin against him. God gave hope to King David after his sin with Bathsheba. God gave hope to Elijah when he ran from God. God gave hope to Mary Magdalene. God gave hope to Peter. Forgiveness and restoration are possible for even those who disobey and run away from God. This same God came to earth and was completely obedient to his father for disobedient children like you and me. And he died on the cross for whatever the situation or responsibility or relationship that we've messed up. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, friends, you can have hope. This is the God of hope that we believe in and we trust, the God that we want to follow. He is surely a God of second chances for continual failures like you and me. Jonah needed to be broken 
He needed to be hunted down and melted and molded and filled with the love of God for the lost before he would be of any use for God. And that's God's way. When Saul in the New Testament was hunting Christians to kill him, God hunted him and saved him on the road to Damascus. When Peter, as I mentioned earlier, denied the Lord on the night of his trial, God pursued him on the beach after the resurrection to redeem him, resend him into ministry. God will use everything in our lives to bring us back into obedience to his word. Paul preached this to the Romans. That, that, we may, that, that, that we may have turned from his will and that God has dealt with us severely. But if we're children, this verse is true. Romans 8, 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And all things here must mean everything or it means nothing. God is at work in our lives and all things for his good so that we'll be ready for those moments when the word of the Lord comes to us a second time or a third time to go and, and obey him. And to our surprise in this story is that Jonah's flight has been a straight line to Nineveh all along. He, he was always going to Nineveh. And God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. The detours of our lives and even the sins that we indulge in are shaped and used by God for his precious purposes. God will always have his way with his children. It says here now in verse 3, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. People have wondered, I've read a number of commentaries this week about the size of the city. Was it three days walking to get there, or was the city so large it would take three days to cover the breadth of the city? It probably, the phrase probably means that, that because Nineveh was such a large and important city that it took time to walk into it and see the appropriate officials before he could share. What we gather is it was a large city. It was an important city. But Jonah would scour the city and to preach this message. But what's emphasized in this passage, though, is the importance, the significance. I want you to get that, that God cared about Nineveh. He cared about the people in the city. Remember, Jonah spent three days in the fish's belly, and he spent the same amount of time preaching in the city. And I wonder if God is teaching him, teaching us, of how many opportunities are wasted when we flee from him. The same amount of time, but what amazing fruit we see through the preaching of God's word. And God intends to bring life out of death, out of destruction in that city. And to my non-Christian friends that are here, as you hear this story shared, as you read it in your Bible, I want you to carefully consider how you've responded to the opportunities that God has brought to you to listen to his word. How many times has God given you opportunities to hear the gospel, and how many more times will you have? God's message to Nineveh was simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on this verse in 1859 said, Oh, men and women, it could be but measure life. It is but a span and in a time how short, how brief every one of us must appear before his God. See, all that God said through Jonah to the city that it was going to be overthrown. He didn't say if another nation would come in and invade it. He didn't say if an earthquake would come and swallow them up or a plague would overtake them. He's incredibly vague 
And because of that, it brings terror to those that are listening. But one thing for sure, in 40 days, their destruction would come. They didn't know how, but they knew it was coming. Friends, I'm fully aware that this might be the last time I share the gospel from this pulpit. But you need to be fully aware that it may be the last time that you ever hear the gospel. God is gracious, and we see that clearly in this book. But you can't bank on his grace to always be there and for you to keep having opportunities to turn from your sin. How dare we ever think that we can safely ignore God? How dare we think that God will always be there to accept us when we continually reject him? We don't know what tomorrow may bring. We don't know what the next hour may bring. God gave Nineveh 40 days, but friend, you don't have that promise in Scripture. God doesn't even promise you the next 40 minutes. He is righteous and just in his judgment for our sins, and he owes us nothing more. Friend, you need to stop running for him. Stop expecting his grace to always be there when you walk away from him, when you reject him. He gave you breath in your lungs this morning, but he might not give it tomorrow. What we read in the scriptures is that our lives are but a mist, James says. We appear for a little while and then we vanish. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised another opportunity to turn from our sin, of trusting in ourselves and instead of turning to Christ. And furthermore, the people of Nineveh lacked something that you and I clearly have. They never heard of the cross. Jonah's preaching was clear and powerful, but there was no Christ in it. There was nothing about a Messiah that was to come. No mention of a great sin atoning sacrifice. But we have the scriptures in their complete form. And we have no excuse we know from 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So friend, we need to stop making excuses as to why you shouldn't repent and turn and trust in Christ. You might be ashamed of your past, but you need to realize you're surrounded with people in this room who've rejected God. We all have. We all ran from him. There's no one exempt in this room. We all turned away trying to live our own lives, our own ways, trying to, to have fun without God, trying to be fulfilled without him, trying to find satisfaction without him. But God, in his grace, drew us in. He knew us, all of us, deep down inside of us, and he saved us. And he can do the same for you this morning. So I implore you to turn from yourself and turn to him. And to my Christian friends this morning, you have glorious opportunities to share the gospel with friends and family and coworkers and classmates. And don't presume that God will keep giving you opportunities. You need to wisely and courageously share the gospel while today you have lung, or air in your lungs. See, God in his sovereign purpose brought a revival to the city of Nineveh. And the instrument of that revival was a man 
who first chose to disobey God's word, but through suffering had a second chance to go and obey. By no means is Jonah perfect. We will, Lord willing, see more clearly the issues that still lingered in his heart in chapter 4. But here in chapter 3, he obeys. And something happened to Jonah. He died to his own needs so that he could go and share hope with dying people who were the object of God's wrath due to their sin. Shouldn't we also be prepared to die to ourselves for the lives of those who have never heard? What I haven't said is that Jonah was about to enter unprotected a city whose inhabitants were preeminently wicked and violent. His message would threaten their way of life with a coming destruction from God. Jonah was walking into a lion's den, and he went anyways. He obeyed. I met a couple weeks ago Stephen Riley and his wife, who are choosing to leave their lives in America to move to Erbil, Iraq, the country I prayed for this morning. Perhaps in the future you can meet them. They're a great couple. They have two young kids. They're packing up in the next few weeks to move to Erbil. Erbil is 50 miles east of Nineveh in the present-day town of Mosul. And they fly there next month, and they're going to serve a local church that has been flourishing the last 15 years. God's still calling people to areas of the world like Nineveh, those areas that are hostile to the gospel. And I pray that God would raise up more from our midst who are willing to die to the American dream and follow the Lord to difficult places like Iraq to preach the word. How many of you have been called to go and you are ignoring God? Friends, there's hope. God is gracious and long-suffering with sinners. And God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And he is gracious with us. So first we look at the preacher. Second, we look at the city, a repenting city. We see the response in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. A mighty awakening takes place in this city. And Jonah goes to the city and preaches eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's five words in Hebrew. And their response is they believe God. And Jonah is saying, what he's saying is you can defy God for a time, but in the end you'll have to face him. And that day is nearer today than it was yesterday. And friends, if you're not trusting in Christ, you won't like God if you meet him outside of Jesus Christ. For the Ninevites, the clock was set at 40 days and everything would be overturned. And practically, as soon as Jonah began to preach, people began to believe. We're told that not only listened to Jonah, but they believed God. They believed that God would overthrow them unless they repented, unless they turned from their wicked ways. They believed that God was powerful enough to do this. It wasn't the force of the argument that moved him, at least what we can read here, but the power of God's truth that pierced their hearts. And friends, do you, wanna, you want your life to change? Believe God. Believe what he says in his word. Perhaps Jonah shared more than this. I, I do believe his message was clear, but his testimony, I believe, included more in what God had done through his disobedience in the days and weeks earlier. Why do I believe that? Well, it's because of verses 6 through, six through 9. 
says, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And we see the evidences of repentance here. False repentance grieves only over the consequences of sin. People are not sorry they sinned, but that they were caught in sin. But true repentance grieves over the sin itself. And how do we see repentance here? Three things. First, they fast. Biblical fasting has several biblical purposes, but one is that of a public expression of penitence. They, they, they recognize their sin and they fast. Second, they put on sackcloth, which was a coarse and rough cloth used for making sacks which normally only the poorest people wore. And like fasting, sackcloth expressed lament and grief and humiliation. And third, the king sets the example in verse 6 by sitting in ashes. He takes off the rich and costly royal robes, donning instead the sackcloth himself, and sitting in ashes is a visible example of self-humiliation. And then he issues a proclamation and encourages the entire city to call out to God. These seem to be an outward sign of inward repentance, a sorrow for their sin, their evil and wicked sins that characterize them as citizens of this city. And repentance is always the first fruit of belief in God's word. But not only did the king and the people characterize repentance, the king here, he preaches it. He says in verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I believe, and it doesn't tell us, so you could disagree with me, that's fine, but I believe Jonah explained all that he went through in getting to that great city. He gave testimony, how, how he was called to go, and he denied and, and, and ignored God, and how he went to a ship to the opposite direction, and God brought a storm, and he was cast overboard, and how he was swallowed up in the water and, and fell to the bottom, drowning, feeling that his life was going to end before a, a fish that God came, that God sent to, to scoop him up. And now how God was faithful to his word and then sent him back to Nineveh to warn them. And a revival breaks out. I, I think from verse 9, the king wanted the same mercy that Jonah received. A revival happens. So what happens in a revival? Well, from one point of view, it's simply the magnifying and multiplying of what happens when God suddenly in the lives of people breaks through. Illumination happens in a revival. The floodgates are opened. The citizens wake up thinking that it's going to just be a normal day like every other day. And they get up and they get dressed and they go on for the day. But then a preacher walks into town with a message that cuts them to the heart. And they're finally awakened to the understanding that they didn't have before. And authentic gospel preaching always engages people with eternal issues. Authentic gospel preaching always engages people with eternal issues. Revivals always happen with God's power and about his revealing of himself. See, the, the citizens of Nineveh didn't have the spiritual awareness to know that a cloud of divine judgment was stretched across their city. And the God of this world had blinded their eyes. 
but with the words of Jonah, it breaks of a sunlight breaking through into their minds, shocking them to find out that they are, they are the object of God's wrath. See, with the preaching of just these, these few words by Jonah's mouth, a flood of light shines into their hearts with alarming power. They no longer stood safely. And they didn't ignore the lowly prophet. They saw divine judgment on their heads and they cry out to God for mercy. A total reversal for their lives had taken place. Instead of complacency and indifference, their hearts were stirred to pray for the mercy of God. I find it interesting they didn't say, well, we, we got 40 days to live it up. We don't, reach, we don't read that. It, it, it comes across that they immediately were turning to God. Friends, there's a a great temptation for us as Christians to be overly concerned to win people over and in so doing to withhold the unpleasant reality of judgment. The warnings of judgment are evidences of God's mercy for he's not willing that any should perish. Pride seems to slip in and causes us to care more about what our non-Christian friend thinks of us more than what God will do to them in their sin. We should lean into the warnings of Scripture. We should share them with grace and love and hope. But we should never be afraid of them, ashamed of them. If you were walking with with friends uh, on a trail, hiking up a mountain and, and seeing the distance ahead, a fellow hiker who's walking closely to the edge so much so that they could fall off at any moment, wouldn't you call out to them of their impending doom? Wouldn't you want to warn them of what's lying ahead? Friends, those of us that are trusting in God, we do the same when we call out to others with the gospel. We call out to unbelievers, calling them to see the danger that they're in. Jonah is preaching a simple sermon here, And they repent of their evil ways. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth. And this was a mass revival, and it wasn't simply because of Jonah. He was an instrument. But again, his his sermon was only eight words. That's not much of a rousing sermon. But what was the result of his preaching? God acted, and the city turned from their evil ways. But man is still God's method. God uses flawed messengers who have experienced his grace and he will use what he's been doing in your life as a means to reaching others. Friends, God never wastes a thing. He can use your failures, your traumas, your shame in the most desperate moments of your life to advance the gospel. And we need to stop believing that God can't use those things in our lives. God won't use us. There have been times when Katie and I have sat in a room counseling someone through hard and difficult situations that we say to them, God's using this, and we pray that God will use this in the future, that he'll use you as you learn and grow of God's word. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, the jewels of spiritual service are always quarried in the depths of spiritual experience. God used simple words by a simple preacher. And we still believe in the simplicity of the gospel for the growth of Christians here. 
There are many that believe that the Bible is the word of God, but they're convinced that the Bible doesn't really work for ministry. Many have affirmed their belief in scripture, but they've moved to more of a pragmatic ministry model and they hope that it will work in their church. But they'll be disappointed because it's through the word and the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word and the applying of the word that fruit comes in ministry. That's why the word must always be at the center of what we do here at Edgewood Bible Church. We must sing the word, pray the word, read the word, preach the word, and see the word in the Lord's Supper and baptism. And I'm in my 20th year of full-time ministry, and I've seen some astounding transformations in the lives of people, and I've seen some sad disappointments, and they're both tied to the word of God. When there has been incredible growth for a Christian, it's been because of the word of God in their life. And when we've seen slow growth and fading and diminishing, it's usually because of the lack of God's word in their life. If you're inclined to think of the Bible as simply information for you to gain knowledge, you need to stop. The Bible is food for the Christian. It's medicine. It's life-giving power. The Bible, the scriptures, are the sword that the Spirit uses to battle indwelling sin in our life. It is the way that God communicates to our soul. We only will grow as we are in the Word. And so we will endeavor to preach the Word here each week. Commentator Peter Williams said, It is the preacher's task and privilege to declare as clearly and as powerfully as God will enable him the truth revealed in the Bible. So friends, if you're a visitor of our church and you're looking for a church, you need to find a church that preaches the word, that holds it up as the source of life. Many choose a church because of the style or the type of music, but that's like choosing a restaurant based upon the decorations in the room. What matters when you're choosing a restaurant it's, is the food nourishing? Is it well-prepared? Will it make you strong or make you sick? And God's word nourishes the soul. So find a church where the word is preached, where the word is taught, where the word is prayed through, where it's discussed, where it's applied to your life. And when you find a church like that, commit. Join the membership. Support the ministry with prayer and finances and encouragement. Regularly pray for the preaching and teaching. Pray for the preachers and the teachers each week. Listen to the word with the church family each week. Don't, don't skip out or haphazardly involve yourself, but dedicate yourself and your family to the church family. And God will use that for his glory. And pray, pray for the leaders of that church. Pray for the leaders of that church that they would be like this king. Do you notice how his attitude changes that we see his example in this chapter. Those who exercise authority in society and in the church and in the home have no higher duty than to lead their people in sincere repentance. That's what we see with this king. And fellow brothers, elders with me in this church, we should be chief repenters in the church. We set the course of the church by our repentance our response to God and his word. This king set the example by rising from his throne, removing his royal robes, covering himself with sackcloth and sitting in ashes. 
the king of Nineveh offered the best possible service for the whole well-being of his people. He set the course for that city. And that's a leader. That's what we should be praying for. And so men, fathers, husbands, do we live that same way in our jobs, in our church, in our homes? Men, in your homes, you should be the chief repenter. You're setting the course of how your life has lived in your home and how your marriages should work and how things should flow in your home and, and how it should work here in the church and how it should be managed. Men, I'll ask, and I'll put you in a spot. When was the last time you repented? If you have to think that long and hard, just ask your wife how you've sinned. And she'll graciously respond. How are you leading your wife? How are you leading your kids if you have them in the home? Do they know how to turn from their sin and turn to God because you've displayed it for them? And women... Pray for us. Pray for the elders. Pray for your husbands if you have one. Pray for the, them as a father in their home. And ladies, if you're single and looking for a husband, pray and look for one who knows how to repent. Here's free advice, ladies. Don't settle for a man. Pray for one that knows and you see displayed who loves Jesus, who reads the Bible unashamedly, and who knows how to repent. So women, pray for us. Pray for gentleness and courage to face our sins and to turn from them and pray that we would have humility. Pray that our church would be an example of regular repentance and humility before the people. Pray that we as leaders wouldn't be immovable, but that we'd be ready to acknowledge sin, to return from it and turn to Christ and turn to God. And God is gracious. God is gracious and long-suffering with sinners. We see that. So we've seen the second chance preacher in the repenting city. And last, this chapter closes with the strongest encouragement for us to repent because we read of God's response. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What does God desire to see in their lives and in ours? It says how they turned from their evil way. It wasn't the outward ceremonies. It wasn't because they fasted or abstained from food and water. It wasn't because they threw off their expensive clothes to sit in sackcloths. It wasn't because of the ashes. It wasn't because of the sacrifices either. It was because they called out to God and repented of their wicked ways. Their hearts turned from their evil and God relented. Jesus uses the city of Nineveh to warn the Jews of the day in Luke 11. He says in Luke 11, verse 30 through 32, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh, Jesus is saying, are competent witnesses to be called in the day of judgment to testify against those who have ignored the warnings that were given to them. So even in Jonah's day, the response of the Ninevites should have acted as a spur to the covenant nation to respond to God's warnings. 
God is gracious and long-suffering with sinners. Even the Gentiles turn from their sin at the preaching of Jonah, as Jesus is saying. So why won't you, Israel, turn from your sins and trust in Christ? Well, one last thing here as we end. There's been concern of the words used about God. It says God relented of the disaster. There's no inconsistency between what God says and, and who he is. When God says that he changed his mind, matters are viewed from our human perspective. It appears to us that there have been a change in God, but what has in fact changed is our human conduct in relation to God. If we were to look back in 1 Samuel 15, we, we covered that a few years ago, it says that God regretted that he made Saul king, and what we learned that Saul was no longer the man that he had once been, but was persistently disobedient. And here, the Ninevites changed their conduct, but in the opposite direction to the way of God. God would have been inconsistent if his attitude towards them had remained the same despite their change in thinking and behavior. And what we learn in the scriptures is that God is consistently against sin. And friends, it's precisely because God is unchanging that we are encouraged to repent. God is unfailing in both his wrath against our sin and his mercy toward faithful repentance. There is no variation in his opposition to wickedness, so we are always called to repent of our sin. But friends, there is no variation in his delight in receiving sinners who call upon the Lord and lay hold of his mercy, so we're called to run to him. God pulled back his hand of judgment on Nineveh here in chapter 3. But not forever. As prophesied by Nahum, Nineveh later experienced total destruction. There was a period of many years, however, between Jonah and Nahum. And God is gracious to the city that day. But God was consistently against sin and that city would see judgment. They floated back to their wickedness. Friends, how have you turned away from God? He graciously brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of his word. And I want you to meditate on Psalm 86, the passage, that, the psalm that Pastor Ryan read earlier. Just a few verses. It says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me and give your strength to your servant. God is gracious and long-suffering with sinners. I pray that we would be faithful in our service to him as we leave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown us incredible graciousness and long-suffering. When we reflect on our last week, we've seen times where we have not been that gracious or long-suffering with others. And yet you have faithfully waited for us. And we call upon you this morning to forgive us, to call us back into right fellowship with you so that we would serve you where you call us, where you send us. Father, we love you. We long to serve you while we have breath in our lungs, that you would help us this week to take your word from this place and speak it to those that we come in contact with this week. Help us to serve you faithfully for your honor and glory alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?
Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord be with you. You're dismissed.